Do you need help protecting your finances as you enter retirement? David Dickens of KC Financial Advisors has got you covered. Welcome to the Cover Your Assets KC podcast. Got a great episode in store for you today on Cover Your Assets KC. Walter Storholt here with David Dickens. And today we're going to talk about timing your retirement preparations. We call it countdown clarity. And we're really focused on when, how far out from retirement you want to focus on particular elements. I'm sure we'll get into a little bit of why you want to focus on these elements, what's important, what you should consider. But our central goal is to kind of figure out a timeline of when do we need to start focusing on all these different parts and pieces. So stay tuned for that. Going to be a great show. David, great to be with you this week, my friend. What's up in uh, your world? Well, let's see. I guess um, we're in the final countdown before um, daughter number two's wedding, which is the end of this month. So uh, Ooh, Kaylin Major coming up married very quick, end of July. Which, frankly, for for fathers of for parents of daughters out there, that's we had to do a financial planning episode on that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, can you please? I would love to hear uh, hear details. Yeah, of, uh, probably not. It'd just be a bunch of sobbing. <laughs> <laughs> We'd no, never hear the actual exciting. prices of great. anything. It would just be crying <laughs> as you're trying to tell yeah. the price. And <laughs> no financial tips on on any of that. But um, have a have a boy. It's, <laughs> it's going to be very cool. I will tell you that. For the for the father of three daughters, adding a son every couple of years is pretty cool. That's neat. That's great. And ha- you have a, a great relationship. It sounds like with your with your son in law. So in both of them, I guess at this point. So I do. I, I wish one of them or both of them lived in my town, but they don't. Uh, so you know, we do a decent job of traveling to get to see everybody, and you know, you do what you can with with what you got. So. Absolutely. No, it's great to hear. Where uh, Where is the wedding going to be? Is that local to you or to, or to them? No, nope. it's going to be in sunny, beautiful, hopefully cool Minneapolis. Oh, nice. I thought you were going to say Dallas for a second because I know you go to Dallas a lot. And I was like, uh-oh, Got Dallas at the crew end of July. <laughs> yeah. Well, Minnesota in July should be a little better than Dallas in July. So. Should be pretty good. That'll be great. Where's the wedding going to be? Is it like a gardens or church or... It's a cool little venue right across. So the Mississippi River runs right down, right by downtown. And this is on the other side of the Mississippi where the university is. And it's a cool little place called The Venue. And so it's, it's just called be, the well. That's it's called that, the venue. They were smart when they were thinking of Wonder people what they googling, do there. right? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's pretty cool. Well, I can't wait to hear a little more about that, how it goes, and uh, and some details on the fun part. We won't worry about all the the yeah, financial lessons exactly. that are needed from it. Well, very good. Enjoy that event, and uh, we'll look forward to a fun report from you uh, when we get there. Let's dive into the topic today, David. So, if you're close to retirement, if you're still far from that exciting date. I don't think it's uncommon for somebody to start wondering, okay, when am I supposed to start planning for retirement? And then what about each aspect of it? Does it all happen at once? Do we kind of do a couple of things 10 years out, five years out uh, on the day of retirement? Figuring out all of those moving pieces is going to be pretty important. And we're going to try and make it a little easy on today's show to track all of it. Uh, We've got six particular planning items we're going to talk about the timing of on today's show. This is not a comprehensive planning list, of course, but hopefully this will give you a good starting point on some central issues. So, David, the first one we've chosen to talk about here is when and how will you be debt free? An important question to ask, when do we need to start really tackling that idea? Yeah, this is super important, and it comes up a lot in the meetings. In fact, all six of these come up a lot in the meetings that I have 
whether somebody is in their late 40s or 50s or 60s or uh, sometimes, you know, into the early 70s, debt-free is real tricky because I, I have, as I have in past podcasts, separated debt into three different categories. And the first one I'm going to talk about is credit card debt. And the, and the time to start addressing that is in your 20s and 30s and 40s, not in your 50s and 60s. Because the best time to get rid, to be debt-free of your credit card debt is now. Regardless of your age, you have to get out of credit card debt if you have it. So, um, I mean, if, if I have, I've occasionally had somebody sitting in my office who's in their mid to late 50s and they have credit card debt and it's, it's still just amazing to me. Now, you know, I can think of a couple of reasons why somebody theoretically might have some credit card debt, but boy, if you're paying 15 or 18 or 22% on a credit card, that is a killer for your retirement plan. So ASAP right now, next week, next month is the time to get rid of your credit card debt. Automobile debt is more tolerable because you know, if, if you go out and, and pay cash for your car, you've done a great job of saving up for the five years that you owned your car to get your new one. Well, that is awesome, and congratulations for you. But, you know, if you're going to take on automobile debt, then you want to do that before retirement and plan to pay it off before retirement. And you just assume not retire with an old car because, you know, you're going to have high, re- high repair bills. You're going to have some safety anxiety. At least, you know, I'm, I'm speaking from... The people I meet with in my office, um, and the eventual replacement of that car. So you'd kind of like to enter retirement with a pretty new car that's super reliable and no car debt. And then your mortgage, well, hopefully you pay off your home when you're 55 or 60, and, and then you're working for another five or seven or 10 years and putting all that, what would have been going into the mortgage payment, you're putting all of that into your 401k or you've maxed out your 401k and now you're putting into a, into a brokerage account. So those are the three main uh, types of debt. And I am way less concerned about mortgage debt unless somebody's two years from retirement and they go out and get a big, beautiful, brand new house with a big mortgage. Why? That's not probably your greatest financial move. But carrying a mortgage with three or four or six years left into retirement, uh, I have a lot bigger issues with other things than I do with that. So it, it's awesome. My, uh, frankly, my most stress-free retirees, they don't have any debt in retirement, and they're just figuring out how much to spend on the stuff that they're doing and not the stuff that they did two or three or four years ago and took on debt to do. Debt's one of those things where there's a financial component, but also that emotional level to it as well. You know, like yeah, you know, and it's big. Even if you didn't move the needle, just financially paying off the debt, um, like for a mortgage, for example, if you had a low mortgage, it's like ah, oh, it's okay having it. Just emotionally, not having one is great. Uh, my parents are in that boat. They 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 can take on a small mortgage as they look to move when they retire later this year, but just. My mom's really resistant to it. She's like, I just don't mentally want it. I just want to be debt-free. And uh, so, you know, that's a big piece of the puzzle. And I think that's great. So when should you start thinking about getting debt-free? 
today. That one's a pretty easy one to uh, to answer and put a time. <laughs> that was on. a long answer to a yeah. to a one word real answer, which is right now. Right now. Hey, additional context never hurts anybody, so that's great. All right. So timing your retirement preparations. How about this next one, David? Are you behind where you need to be from a savings standpoint, and can you realistically catch up? When should we start getting stressed about that? Well, so I think that's part of the planning process that you start in your 20s and 30s and 40s. And you have that goal sheet that you update maybe once a year when you do your net worth statement. Uh, but, but you kind of want to have your, I think you want to have your eye on that from the very beginning. So there's some statistics out there. They're kind of helpful. I'm actually going to say some of them. But kind of right off the top, you probably need less if you're going to live in Kansas City than if you're going to live in Atlanta or New York City or Boston. So a lot of it has to do how much you need and are you behind. When you go with national statistics, uh, it's not particularly helpful. So that's where you want to have a a plan that's actually um, geared toward you and the lifestyle you expect. So some statistics, and these are, man, these are difficult to look at. There is a survey of consumer finances, and it tries to figure out how much everybody has. The average under 35-year-old has saved 30 grand for their retirement. The average 35 to 44-year-old household has saved 132 grand. If you're between 45 and 54, the average has saved a little over $250,000. If you're 55 to 64, the average has saved about $400,000 for retirement. And between 65 and 74, the average has, it hadn't gone up much, in fact, but they've started spending it down. They've only saved $426,000 for retirement. So that's kind of interesting, but how much you need depends on how much you want to spend. So I like this, this, this next metric a lot better. And it's not a hard and fast rule, but kind of a rule of thumb for savings. Fidelity, for instance, uh, the big brokerage company, big mutual fund company, suggests that at age 30, you'd want to have one times your annual income saved for retirement. So that is geared to the lifestyle that you're used to living, as opposed to some somewhat meaningless national average as to how much 30-year-olds have. So you live in New York City, you're probably have a, hopefully you have a way bigger income than if you live in Kansas City. But one times that income is what you'd want in 30. Three times your income is kind of what you'd want at 40. So if you make a um, hundred grand a year, you'd want to have at least 300 grand saved up for retirement at age 40. At age 50, you'd kind of want to have six times your annual income. So uh, you're making 200 grand a year at age 50, you'd want to have a million two saved up. And at age 60, you'd kind of want to have eight times your annual income saved up for retirement. There's nothing uh, hard and fast about that. I've seen another one, not from Fidelity, that says, you know, at age 50, you ought to have five times your annual income saved instead of six times. I think the key for me and, and for, the, for what I've done in my business with my clients is, and my younger clients in particular, is to make sure that you're systematically saving for retirement. Uh, whether you use one of these benchmarks that I just said, or for instance, you say, you know what, what I've said in in numerous podcasts before is, make sure you're saving 10% of what you make into your 401k, your Roth 401k, your IRA, or your brokerage account. 
regardless of, of which vehicle you use, you want to start at 10% of what you make. And that's going to assure that you're, that you're not overspending on your current lifestyle to the detriment of your future lifestyle. So you can kind of sort of set it and forget it. Well, you can set it. And the important thing is to set it and do that systematically, but don't forget it. So what you'd really like to do is as your income goes up over the years, now, instead of only saving 10% of what you make, you save 12% or soon 15%. Or maybe if you're doing well for yourself, you're up to 20% because you're not going to spend all of that. Now you want to save it up and spend it on your lifestyle in retirement. And then, Walter, just a couple of numbers here. 2023, your maximum that you can save in your 401k, if you're under 50, is 22,500. If you're over 50, it's 30 grand. So let's say, for instance, that you make 150 grand a year. Well, if you're going to, and you're under 50, if you're going to max out your 401k, that's 15% of your income that needs to go to your 401k not the 10%. If you want to max it out, that's 15%. Let's say that you're over 50 and you make 250 grand a year. Well, to max out the $30,000 maximum contribution, well, that's only 12% of your $250,000 salary. But you've been used to saving 15%. So what do you do? If the most you can put into your 401k is only 12%, well, you open up a brokerage account and you put money into a taxable brokerage account and hopefully invest that for growth and you invest it tax efficiently. But the key for me as a planner, as an advisor, is a couple of things to make sure that my younger clients are saving systematically. Whether they have a 401k at work or not, they set up a plan for their own home budget where they are saving every month, every paycheck, a certain percentage of what they make, not a certain dollar amount and that they strive to increase that percentage over time. I love that, David. I'd like to piggyback on it too, if uh, if you're all right with that, and say not only the systematic part being really important, this is just my, my own personal experience, um, that, that's really key, but then also um, making sure that you're investing it in places where it's difficult for you to go and rob that account. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Because <laughs> just from personal experience, um, have I, I, the automation, check, got that. But I struggle to build up an emergency fund, even though I systematically save into it, because it's just really easy to go into that savings account and move it right back into checking. And so I tend to build up my emergency savings fund and then rob it. So I'm not doing a great job of maintaining the emergency fund. I can build it, but I, I rob it frequently. <laughs> And so, yes. and whereas I don't do that in a 401k, your IRA and some of those other accounts. It's just harder to get to. So yeah. out of sight, out of mind has a it certain is. charm to it when you're doing long-term savings. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, great tips there. Thank you, David, for sharing that. All right. Item number three, timing your retirement preparations. Do you have a structured plan to generate your income in retirement? All right. So I'm, I'm 35. I'm a, Almost 36, David. It's, it's, coming, it's coming soon. <laughs> wow, um, you're old, Walter. I know, I know. Do I need to start really thinking about this income portion, or can I, can I boot that down the road? When do we really start needing to get serious about the income equation? I think you can easily boot this part of the equation down the road. 
Um, Ooh, that's a relief. So, <laughs> One less thing to worry about for now. <laughs> something to not add to your list for tomorrow. Um, so structured plan for income kind of means three things to me. It means if you're lucky enough to have a pension, then that is part of a, of a guaranteed income stream you're going to have in retirement. Social Security is a second leg of that income stool. And third might be some sort of cash flow from an annuity that you might purchase for yourself, kind of like as though it were a private pension plan that you set up for yourself. But those are all things that are going to pay you monthly income from retirement to the rest of your life and hopefully to the end of your spouse's life as well. And so Social Security has a nice cost of living increase, a COLA attached to it, but most pensions don't and most annuities don't. So the way you structure your income plan may need to be, probably needs to be supplemented for future inflation. So those are, those, that's kind of the guaranteed or structured income plan. For people who don't have a pension and they don't have an annuity and, and are choosing not to buy an annuity, they have Social Security and they need to set up in their minds and probably in their accounts, once they're retired, some sort of systematic withdrawal from their investments. So I always encourage my clients and I try to set them up like this such that they have a retirement paycheck coming into their checking account. Now I have some clients that say, you know, Dave, I just want to go get an annual lump and I'll put it in my savings account and draw on it when I need it. And that's okay if that's the way you structure your brain for money. But most people after working for 40 or 45 years find it a comfort to have money coming into their checking account every month. And that's based on their plan and if they have extra money at the end of the month, they go, oh, okay, I, I, I'm ahead of plan. If they run short every month, they're like, wow, I'm either overspending, overspending or I don't have a good plan or something has gone wrong, but it's kind of a red flag for them. So I'll set up systematic withdrawals from their 401k or their IRA. I have, um, I have a couple of clients and a couple of friends. Uh, they have bigger non-IRA accounts. And what they've done is invest in dividend-paying stocks. And they try really hard not to get worried about the price of those stocks when they go down. But what they're really doing is just harvesting a 3 or a 4% dividend. They have that, instead of reinvested, now that they're not working anymore, they're retired, they have that paid to them. And so they spend those dividends. And of course, dividends are taxed advantageously. So that's a positive thing. So really, for, this, for the answer to this question, Walter, I usually try to figure out if the person sitting across the desk from me is a person who wants more certainty or whether they're willing to accept less certainty, but probably higher returns. So like most things in life, the more guarantees, the more certainty you want, well, the lower return you're going to get because guarantees are kind of expensive. That doesn't mean they're not right for you. It just means that they're kind of expensive. And so everybody gets to choose kind of three ways to do it. Have no plan at all and just go at it with, with no structure at all. Having a very structured income plan and then using their other pots of money, their 401ks and their IRAs for the extra expenses, the big trip, whatever they have, or a medical problem. And then kind of a, a middle 
ground where people set up these structured incomes or kind of guaranteed incomes for their base income. And that's usually somebody that is getting a pension from the work that they did when they were working. Great help, I think, there, David, to get some clarity around that income portion and when we need to start tackling that and thinking about it. Really important, obviously, to do, and then knowing when to do it, even more important. This next one, interesting uh, to hear your answer here, David, and I know we've covered this um, in a couple of different angles on various podcasts that we've done, but when should you start drawing Social Security? This is both a question of when to do it and then also when to start thinking about it, when, when, when to figure out that part of the plan. Yeah, so that really should come onto your radar screen, I think, in your early 50s, because at that point, you have a real good rhythm as to how much you've been saving and how much you're going to save. You know how old your kids are, and if you're paying for their college, uh, you know if you know those types of expenses that you can pretty much see from there. And maybe your mortgage is paid off and your kids are out of college, and and so all of a sudden you're like, well, <laughs> I won't need to start. I'm going to save so much over the next 15 years that I won't need to start Social Security until I'm 70. So there are good reasons to start Social Security at each of three different ages, which I'm going to discuss now. But again, you want to start, I think you want to build this timing idea into your plan in your early 50s. So you get to 62, which is the earliest you can claim it, and you've got kind of low savings. And maybe you lost your job, or maybe you have a a job that's just not hardly paying you anything. Or maybe you have a short life expectancy that you're pretty confident in. In that case, those are perfectly okay reasons to start Social Security at the earliest point, age 62. Maybe it's age 63 when you lose your job. Maybe at age 64 you realize, oh, something happened to my health and I'm going to have a short life expectancy, so there's no reason to wait. Uh, The other kind of normal time to start is most of our listeners are going to be at age 67, which would be their full retirement age. We have a lot of listeners that have already started Social Security, but for those who haven't, their full retirement age is probably right around 67 years old. So these are people that might say, well, I could wait longer, but I know from the work that I did uh, earlier or that I talked to my advisor about that my break-even age is about 82. So I'll get the same amount of money out of this program, whether I start it early or late, by the time I get to 82. So in this case, somebody's done a pretty good job of saving for retirement. But the longer they wait, the more stress it puts on their 401ks and their IRAs and their brokerage accounts by taking money out to live on while they wait to start Social Security. So frankly, I've counseled a number of people that starting at your full retirement age, 67, is going to reduce the stress on your investment accounts, which is probably going to reduce the stress on you and your outlook on retirement. And frankly, you should take almost any opportunity you can to reduce your financial stress in retirement. So 67, full retirement age is a perfectly fine time to start. But let's say you're the person that maxed out your 401k all these years. You had excess money, so you put it into a brokerage account. What you're going to probably do is look for every opportunity to wait till age 70 because it doesn't get any better after age 70. But it does grow nicely if you don't touch it until age 70. So that would be the time when you'd start Social Security. 
you're going to get the best and biggest cost of living increases, and you're going to get the largest spousal benefit for assuming you're married for when you die and your spouse gets the bigger of your two social securities. So bigger is better, usually, when we're talking about money. So that's the type of person that would typically wait till 70. Your choice between those three should be pretty clear to you by your early 50s. And that's why I say early 50s is when you can start zeroing in on the answer of when am I going to start drawing Social Security. I always look for areas where I learn a new nugget from you, David, and I feel like I just had it for today's episode. There's always <laughs> one every episode where I'm like, yep, learn something new today. And I think that's the the timing of that that aspect, when to start thinking about Social Security and, and picking that plan. It's it's not when you hit 62 uh, or in that, that range, uh, but no, a little, little earlier we want to start planning that out. So that's really helpful. Uh, next bullet point we should bring up as we talk about timing your retirement preparations would be should you stay in your home or sell it and downsize or, I guess, something else. I mean, that could be lots of different choices when it comes to housing, right? Yeah, for sure. And and one thing you brought up back in the discussion of debt was the emotional toll certain decisions take on people. So this is one. There's no right answer. My wife and I disagree on this answer. <laughs> and we're very happily married for 42 years. <laughs> so there's not a there's not so a right answer. Don't be answer. surprised if that happens to you as well, right? <laughs> <laughs> so there's not a right answer to this. I mean, staying in your home, there's familiarity, there's comfort. Frankly, there's a bunch of inertia. You're like, well, we should think about that, but not today. And so there's, that's, there's a lot of reasons why people don't ever sell it and downsize. I know some very happy people who have downsized. They have lower maintenance costs because they're probably buying into a newer construction, a newer home. So it has a brand new AC. It has a brand new roof. It has a brand new furnace. All the plumbing is new. Um, and it's decorated the way you want it. So you're not constantly spending money on your old place because you have a new one. You're probably going to have lower electric and gas bills. You would think it would be cheaper to live in a downsized home, but you'd have less space. So then there's the choice of, well, do I want to downsize and go to an, an active adult community, one of those 55 and older communities? Or do I want to do a kind of a lock and leave place? stay in a, in a regular neighborhood, but have something where if I'm gone for a month on a trip, I'm not worried about things. And then just recently, we moved, uh, helped my mother move into an independent living situation where I think she's happier than she ever thought she was going to be because all of a sudden, she's surrounded by lots of friends, new friends that she's just met. She gets three meals a day, the place is new and fresh, and so there's just a lot of emotional decisioning that goes into whether to stay in your home or sell it and downsize. If you sell it and downsize, the other thing I haven't mentioned is you may sell a house for half a million dollars and buy a house for $400,000, which puts a hundred grand in your bank account. Uh, you may sell a house for a million bucks and move into a place for 750000 and you put $250,000 into your account. What are you going to do with that two fifty? Well, maybe you travel your brains out. Maybe you start gifting money to your grandkids. A lot of things you can do with an extra hundred dollars or $250,000. But that's another benefit of downsizing is you oftentimes have 
extra home equity that you didn't put into your new place. And that can help subsidize, supplement your retirement income that you otherwise wouldn't have because that money's all tied up in home equity. It's a really logical way to look at things. And uh, that doesn't necessarily help the emotional component, though, when you disagree with the plan with your significant (laughs) other. So if you're in that situation, you've got to work through that and talk that part out, and then the financials can can follow. Um, But it sounds like the, the two things definitely go hand in hand. All right, we've had four great points so far, David. Let's get, or actually five. Let's get to our yeah, final one. Yeah, I was wondering one which one you didn't like. I, sh- I shortchanged you just a little bit there. <laughs> <laughs> only, only, only four of the five were good. No, uh, all, all good ones so far. You'll put that in the show notes, right? That's right, exactly. Here's the oh, one I didn't agree with. Here's our here's our true feelings. Ch- check the show notes to see Walter's the one he really thought we missed the mark on. Uh, no, last one would be uh, regarding legal documents, and the important question is: Hey, are these up to date? Are they accurate? Um, And have I planned for some of those long-term care needs from both a financial standpoint, but a legal standpoint, as David was starting to uncover that a little bit in that last response. So the big thing here, though, David, is the timing of that. Again, kind of similar to the Social Security one. I'm hoping I don't have to start worrying about it maybe here at 30, 35, 36 quite yet. But when should that really kind of get onto my, you know, top of mind? Yeah, so I have have four different types of legal documents in mind, and they I mean, honestly, I, I met with a super nice couple a couple of weeks ago. She is 36 and he's 42. I suggested a couple of these things that they really need to do now. But there are other things that are less important to do now, uh, but super important to do in your 60s. And frankly, if you hear one of these in your 70s and you haven't done it, you're way behind. So, for instance, one thing you definitely need to have is... You need to have somebody designated as your power of attorney. And all that means is if you can't speak for yourself, who's going to? Who's authorized to do that? That would be a financial power of attorney and a healthcare power of attorney. Usually it's a one-page legal document. Could you get it off the internet? Sure. If you're a super good do-it-yourselfer, does it cost really any money to go see an attorney? Not very much. And you'll make sure you're getting what you need. Then they'll also probably give you a HIPAA authorization. At the same time, another one-page document that basically says, if you're in the hospital and your spouse or your kid or somebody else comes in who you want to get medical information about you, well, the doctor legally isn't supposed to give them any unless there's a HIPAA authorization involved. So those are things you can have in advance. Third one, a medical directive. A lot of people call it a living will, but that's basically saying Here's what I want to happen to me if, let's say I get into a car rash, crash and I'm in a coma and people want to know, oh, did dad, did my husband want me to pull the plug or did he want me to use every possible means to keep him alive? Well, my medical directive says, <laughs> do not use every possible means. If it's unlikely for me to, to get back to where I was, pull the plug. Well, that just creates, it should create calm amongst the people who love me, that they're not having to make that decision on my behalf, that I've already made the decision and I've communicated that clearly. So an advanced medical directive or a living will is super important. And then finally, since we've already been at the podcast for a while, I want to try to wrap up uh, in a, we're already long from what we normally do, but, and we've done a podcast just on beneficiary designations, but these are super important. And I see this all the time, where they're either not there or they've just been procrastinated about or they're incorrect. So one thing, 
that is super important, for instance, on your bank accounts. Now you might say, Dave, I don't need a beneficiary designation because I have a power of attorney. I have a financial power of attorney. And the answer to that is, once you're gone, your power of attorney cannot do anything with your bank accounts because that document ceases to be relevant when you die. So that's why you have to have a TOD, a transfer on death of your bank accounts and your CDs, your savings accounts, those types of monies, the bank, if there's not a beneficiary or a joint owner, like for instance, your spouse, uh, that money is not going to be able to get out of there until it goes through probate and a judge says, okay, here's, we've checked all the newspapers and everybody, we figured out who you owe money to and who you don't. And now your heirs can have that money. So it's really important to have a TOD on your bank accounts, credit union accounts, uh, those types of things. Investment accounts, they need to have beneficiary designations. Your 401k and your IRA, they do because nobody's going to open an IRA or, or a 401k for you without a beneficiary designation. Now, over time, it may have the wrong person named because your life has changed, but at least you know that those accounts have beneficiary designations. But your brokerage account won't unless you do it. Your cars. Uh, I just got a new car. And I went to the DMV and I got, I, I, I licensed it in my own name and have my wife as the beneficiary. So you just want to make sure the DMV, that takes about eight seconds at the DMV uh, to get a, a beneficiary designated on anything that has a title. Maybe you have a boat. Maybe you have a motorcycle. Maybe you have a couple of cars. They all need beneficiary designations. And then of course your home, your rental properties, anything that ha that is real estate related, those can have a beneficiary designation on the title. So Walter, the question of when, I mean, you and your wife would need those and you're 36. So there's never a bad time to figure out those types of legal documentations that are going to determine where your money and your assets go when you die. Because that's the reason we have life insurance. We don't know when we're going to go. And we hope we all live to a, I hope I live to a ripe old age of like 93 and I'm totally lucid and I'm, my body's working. And then one morning I just don't wake up, but <laughs> you don't know when you're going to go. And that's why these legal documents are super important, almost regardless of your age. Uh, if you're 26 and you're unmarried, okay, I'll give you a pass on basically all of these. But if you're 32 and married and you got a kid, well, you need to pay attention to this stuff. I think in my first job, I had to, you know, put somebody in in that box, right? <laughs> or or just I'm looking at going, I, I don't know. So I just put my mom, you know. But then it's funny to think if you then lived for years and then, um, you know, w with it being like that, if you happen to stay at that company and with that policy and all those kinds of things and then you get married and, you know, <laughs> then if something happens and you die and, you know, that payout goes to your mom instead of your wife or something <laughs> like that. It's funny. Yeah, you'd you have know, some explaining to do, but you won't be around maybe. to explain it.
Yeah, exactly. So it's nice. We bookended the episode with two where the answer was do it today. You know, do it now. There's not a bad time. You don't have to wait for some age where it becomes more appropriate to deal with it. The proper time is now. So good way to wrap it up there, David. Uh, We covered a lot of ground, but I feel like I picked up a lot of good nuggets from today's episode, and I hope you did too as you listened in. If it sparks any questions on your mind and you want to get some more clarity around those and have a conversation with David and the team, At KC Financial Advisors, all you have to do is pick up the phone, give them a call, 913-317-1414. They can set you up for a full review or just ask a couple of questions that might be on the top of your mind to get things started. You can also go online to CoverYourAssetsKC.com. Check out the website. Great resources there like the blog, past episodes of the podcast, and so much more. Again, that's CoverYourAssetsKC.com. We'll put the links in the description of today's show for all of those ways to communicate, plus more info there for you as well. David, thanks for all your help. Really enjoyed the conversation with you, and we'll talk again soon. I always look forward to the next time, Walter. Yes, sir. Absolutely. Well, thanks, for everybody, for tuning in. We'll see you next time on Cover Your Assets, KC. Advisory services offered through Creative One Wealth, LLC, an investment advisor. KC Financial Advisors and Creative One Wealth, LLC, are not affiliated. We are an independent financial services firm, helping individuals create retirement strategies using a variety of insurance products to custom suit their needs and objectives. The information and opinions contained in this program have been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed. They are given for informational purposes only and are not a solicitation to buy or sell any of the products mentioned. The information is not intended to be used as the sole basis for financial decisions, nor should it be construed as advice designed to meet the particular needs of an individual situation. This material has been provided by a licensed insurance professional for informational and educational purposes only and is not endorsed or affiliated with the Social Security Administration or any government agency. It is not intended to provide and should not be relied upon for accounting, legal, tax, or investment advice.